the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. If you'd ever asked anybody in my high school class if I would ever turned out to be this this preacher of the gospel and writing two-thirds of the New Testament, nobody would have ever believed it. And some of you sitting here right now have a similar story, don't you? And that's the wonderful way that God works. There are people that you grew up with who, who would never have imagined in a million years you'd be in church and you'd love Jesus and you'd be singing songs of praise, you'd be reading your Bibles, having a Bible study. But that's, that's just the way God works. God's wisdom and logic consistently defies and contradicts what makes sense to our human brains. He takes people that we would look at as completely lacking in potential, and He transforms them into great instruments for accomplishing His will in this world. Over and over throughout Scripture, you'll see this, and the pattern continues in our world today. Pastor Gary will encourage us in today's message, to look at the people we encounter with a godly sort of hope and optimism. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Peter has made this dramatic change. Like, I'm a Jew, but I accept these Gentiles now. Ten years later, Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, will rebuke Peter to his face. Why? Here's what happened. Ten years after the whole scene with Cornelius, Peter's hanging out, having ham sandwiches with his Gentile bros. Can you imagine how liberating that is? You've never had ham, and now all of a sudden you get ham with bacon on top. By the way, bacon makes everything good, right? So he's having a ham and bacon sandwich sitting around with his Gentile buddies, okay? They've been, they were working out, and it's like, you know, let's go have a good ham sandwich. So they were having a ham sandwich together. And some of Peter's Jewish friends happen to come in to where he's eating with these Gentiles. And what does Peter do? He pretends like he doesn't know his Gentile friends. And he gets up from the table and says, ah, I don't even know those guys. I don't even know this. Why did he do that? He did that because he was afraid of the perception to his Jewish friends that he was actually socializing with Gentiles. Okay. Now, if this is kind of hard for you to understand, let me put it in, in context like this. And I hope you allow me just to use this illustration just for the purpose of illustration. Let's say that I'm having lunch with an Hispanic friend and some of my white buddies walk in to the restaurant. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, I don't want them to see me with my Hispanic friend, and so I pretend like I don't know that guy. Would that be offensive or what? Very offensive. Very wrong. 
This is what Peter was doing. So in, in Galatians chapter 2, I think it's verse 11, Paul says, So I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. The reason I bring this up is because even for a spiritual giant like Peter, 10 years after the fact that he thought he had dealt with some heart issues related to a little prejudice towards some people, it crept up again. I think all of us have to really look deep into our own hearts to see if there's even a little seed of prejudice. Because every form of prejudice or hostility towards another person based on whatever difference, whether it's color, ethnicity, differences in education, differences in uh, how you grew up or where you grew up or whatever the differences might be, any form of prejudice or hostility or anything disparaging is not only wrong, it is sin. It is sin. And it needs to be seen for what it is. And it needs to be confessed for what it is. Because if there is any kind of prejudice within your heart, man, we've got to search ourselves and make sure and confess it as sin if it's there and ask God to forgive us. Why? Because... He wants us to understand that as far as God is concerned, there's no difference. Now, when Peter did recognize initially Cornelius and the work of God in Cornelius' heart and in the heart of his family, that's when Peter says in Acts chapter 10, he says, I now know that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from all nations who fear him and who do what is right. And, And so we need to be the same way. There there certainly can't be any in our hearts, and there must not ever be any in our church. When I say any, I'm talking about any prejudice, any any kind of hostility. Because here now, carry on again, verse 14, he says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two, meaning Jew and Gentile, one. By destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two. In other words, one church. Out of, out of two distinct groups of people, one church, thus making peace. And in this one body, this one church body, to reconcile, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, meaning the Gentiles. They were far away from the Lord. He came and preached Christ to those who were far, peace to those who were far away, to Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Okay, now there's nothing wrong with being different. The differences add to the richness in, in, in the body of Christ. So he's not saying here, you know, stop acting like Jews and, and stop, you know, you know that, even though you're Gentiles, of course, stop the immoral stuff. But it, doesn't, it isn't like now you have to start acting like Jews and Jews you have to start acting a little bit more Gentile. It's just keep... Keep your unique culture, keep your unique differences, but make sure those aren't causes for hostility or disagreement or disunity or prejudice because we're one church and we're serving one Lord and he has, divi- he has broken down that dividing wall of hostility because of the cross. Verse 19. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, speaking again to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, circle that word, household, built on the foundation, circle that word, 
of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone, circle that word, in him the whole building, circle that word, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So for you note takers, he talks here about God's household because he's talking about now the church with their differences, Jew and Gentile, they're coming together and they're making one church, okay, capital C. All right, there are local churches, small C, right? But, you know, local churches make up the church, capital C. And so he talks first about the foundation. He says the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets, which is the word of God. Why why do we know that? Verse 20. Because what the apostles said is what comprised the New Testament. What the prophets said is what comprised the Old Testament, by and large. So when, when when he's talking here about the foundation of the church... He says the foundation of the church is the word of God. It's, it's, the, it's what we have now is our Bible. It's the sum total of the apostolic and the prophetic. It's Old Testament, it's New Testament. And he said that the cornerstone is Jesus. In a building, the cornerstone is laid because the cornerstone is, is what sets the building on its proper course. It's what sets it on the right foundation. And so the cornerstone is essential. All the rest of the building is aligned according to the cornerstone. So, you know, look, our our church bears the name of Jesus in that sense because we want to make sure that everything about our church is focused on Jesus, about Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the one by whom we align everything, not just for our lives, but for our church as well. The church, capital C has as its cornerstone, Jesus. And then he talks about the building itself. He says, it's God's people. You are that temple. He says there in verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So it's the people that make up the, you know, the church is, the church is brick and stone and mortar. I mean, but that's not the church. The church, the building is God's people. Remember one time years ago, Tyler's 27 now, but when he was like, I don't know, like four, I was putting him to bed and I was doing this thing about, you know, here's, here's the church and here's the steeple and open it up. And what's the answer? See all the people, right? And so I was doing this with him and I'm like, and here's the church and here's the steeple and open it up. And he said, and see the people sleeping. I'm like, what? <laughs> Maybe you've been looking around. I don't know. But so the people is what really makes up the church. It's, the building is a place where we meet, but the church, capital C, is about the people. Chapter 3. Let's see how far we can get. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. King James uses the word dispensation instead of administration. It's actually an, uh, an, an economic word. It means stewardship. So he's saying, you know, I'm trying to be a good steward of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Now, the word mystery in our English comes from the Greek word mysterion. And, and yet the Greek word has a different meaning than what English typically defines mystery as. When, when we say in English, hey, something's a mystery, it means we, we don't get it. You know, it's, it escapes our understanding. But in Greek, mysterion actually means something that was formerly not known, which is now disclosed. 
And so when you read in, in this context the word mystery, he's not saying this is something confusing, perplexing, or beyond our understanding. He's actually using it in the Greek sense, so we need to kind of understand that in our minds, where, whereby he means that something previously unknown has now been fully disclosed. That's a mystery in the Greek language. And he says, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. Verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, what he's saying is, you know, the, the fullness understanding of the whole death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that was only something that people before Christ did that you know, thought about, imagined, because the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah. But Paul says, now in our day, in our generation, we we actually have come to understand this. So this mystery has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, now now there at verse 8 when he says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, what he means is I am the last one anyone would have expected to get saved. And it's true because Paul was, he was a murderer. He was so zealous for Judaism that he thought Christians, before he got saved, he thought Christians were heretics that were, that were trying to dilute and distort the true message of Judaism. So he was going around persecuting Christians, helping them to, to be martyred. And, and that's when the Lord got a hold of his attention on the road to Damascus and he had this dramatic conversion. So he's basically saying, you know, if you'd ever asked anybody in my high school class if I would ever turned out to be this, this preacher of the gospel and writing two-thirds of the New Testament, nobody would have ever believed it. And some of you sitting here right now have a similar story, don't you? And that's the wonderful way that God works. There are people that you grew up with who, who would never have imagined in a million years you'd be in church and you'd love Jesus, and you'd be singing songs of praise, you'd be reading your Bibles, having a Bible study. But that's, that's just the way God works. And Paul says, I'm the last one anybody would have thought to get saved, but this grace was given me. Here's, here's what he told me to do, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain, verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church... Through us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Okay, we're not sure if he just means angels in general or specifically demons, fallen angels. Because he's going to, in chapter 6, use a similar term when he talks about rulers and principalities and authorities in the heavenly realms. Chapter 6, it's all about the demonic. So we're not sure if he means that as the church, we have this wonderful privilege of proclaiming the, the good news such that angels over here, demons over here. But that has been given to us as the privilege, not, not to angels Certainly not the demons. It's been given to the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 11, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that good? 
freedom and confidence. You ever been a little intimidated to approach God because you don't know if he's going to be mad at you? He says, no, with freedom and confidence, we can approach the throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews would say something similar, and you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can run with great freedom and confidence to the arms of our loving Father because he stands ready to forgive and he's always in love with us. So he says that there with confidence and freedom. Verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So, I mean, he's in prison. He's writing to them. But he's, he said, like, don't be disheartened about my condition. God has me right where I'm supposed to be, and this is for your glory. It is for God's glory. It is for your help. By the way, if you'll notice back up in verse 1, he, he, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, what's interesting is in chapter 1, he starts the letter by saying, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So that's who he is. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. But where he is, is he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Rome. And yet what he says is, I'm, I'm really bound to Jesus. And I'm, I'm really a servant of Jesus, even though I'm in, I'm in these Roman chains. Because he knows that his real allegiance is, is to Jesus. I'm a prisoner. I'm a servant. I belong to Jesus. So who I am as an apostle, where I am, I'm a prisoner right now, but I'm a prisoner not just of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Let's look real quickly at the last section of chapter 3 before we close, because it is the second of two prayers that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, and I think it's a great prayer for us to consider for ourselves as well. In verse 14, he says, for this reason, for everything I've already said, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He says in verse 16, I pray. Now, now notice his posture is, he says, I kneel. It's not required that you kneel when you pray, although there are many examples in the Bible of people who knelt when they prayed. Solomon knelt in 1 Kings 8. Ezra knelt in Ezra 9. Daniel knelt in Daniel 6. Stephen knelt in Acts 7, Peter knelt in Acts 9, Paul knelt in Acts 20. You have a lot of examples of people who kneel, but it's not about the posture. It's not, it's not always about kneeling or standing. It's not even about closing your eyes or open. You know, sometimes I pray with my eyes open. The other day, Terry and I were praying together, and, I, and she's praying with her head bowed, and, I'm, and I have her hand. We're, we're praying together, but as she's praying, I just have my eyes open, and and then she finished praying. She went, amen. She looked at me, saw my eyes open. She said, you weren't even praying. No, I was. I was, but sometimes, sometimes actually I can, I can focus better. I, it's weird, but I don't, I don't know why. I can just keep my eyes open and just have this blank stare because when I close my eyes, sometimes my mind wanders. And I think, oh, I've got to pay the bills and the car needs to be inspected. And, and what time is it? Oh, my goodness, I had, to, I had to get on the computer before I go to bed. And so I can do that. So sometimes I just keep my eyes open, you know, especially if you're driving, you know. <laughs> 
if you're praying while you're driving, please don't close your eyes, you know, keep your eyes open and, but you can stand, you can kneel. What I have found, however, is that when I do kneel, that posture just reminds me of being humble and broken before the Lord. There's something about the posture of kneeling that reminds you that he is God and you are just a humble servant of the Lord. And, and, that, and that in that kneeling posture, it just kind of reminds you, just stay humble and you're serving your Lord, your master, your savior. And so he takes that posture. It's not required, but it's encouraged. And he says in verse 16, I pray, he's going to pray for three things. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. That's one thing. I'll highlight it on the screen in a moment. In your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This is the second thing. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the third thing. So for you note takers, here's the first thing he prays for, is to be strengthened by the Spirit. And he says specifically to be strengthened with power by the Spirit. And the word power in the original Greek language is dunamis. We get our English word dynamite from that word. It is the word of, uh, that, that is that powerful, infilling, and overflowing work of God's spirit. When you read the book of Acts, which is the testimony of the acts of the early church, the acts of the apostles, that's when you see the Holy Spirit poured out upon all flesh, a fulfillment in Acts 2 of Joel chapter 2. What's interesting is all through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the main theme is love. When you get to the book of Acts, the word love is not mentioned one time, not once. It is the word power. It is mentioned 13 times in the book of Acts. Power, power, power. We need the power of God's Spirit in our lives if we are to live our lives with any degree of strength. And so we praise that. That's a good thing for us to pray on a regular basis. Lord, strengthen me with your power. Then he also prays that we would know the love of the Son. He's going to mention the Trinity in this prayer. Spirit, Son, Jesus. He says, I want you to know the full extent of the love of the Son. I pray that you would be able to grasp how wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? What he means is, I want you to know this experientially more than just having a head knowledge of this. I want you to know how much Christ loves you, that he loves you with an everlasting love, that he loves you so much that he offered his life on a cross for you and me. He loves you with an everlasting love. Paul says, I pray that you would grasp just the magnitude. That's what he means when he says how high and wide and deep. It's not just you can measure it. He says it's immeasurable. But I pray that you would grasp the magnitude the immensity of the love of Jesus for you. And thirdly, lastly, he says, and I pray that you would experience the fullness of the Father. That's how he ends that verse. He says, and to know the Son of the that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma, pleroma. And it literally means to, to fill a container. I don't want my, my cup half full or a third full. I don't want to be content with that. I want him to fill me to capacity. I want his fullness in my life. So, but look at the last section there, and then we'll pray. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, 
according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we explore the book of Ephesians together. With all that is going on in the world today, this letter resonates deep. It dives into the core of all that is wrong with the world, selfishness. We as people can't help but want things our way and on our time. But Jesus taught to love deeper than that. He taught to live beyond your own desires. Paul, a man who once lived recklessly for himself, wanted those in Ephesus to understand what Jesus taught. He wanted the believers to not get caught up in their own wants and ways, but to see the bigger picture. Paul called for unity, just as Jesus did. That's what community should be. Is it always easy? No. Is the reward great? Yes. If you're looking to be a part of a community of believers who have this as their mission, then we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30, 10, and 11.45, as well as Wednesday nights at 7, so you have options. Head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more details as to where we meet and when. Again, that is cornerstoneconnection.cc. With that, we hope you'll join Pastor Gary next time, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling, listen, truth open your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Hope is an open ocean. Jump in and you'll find the cornerstones. Your connection run towards your new General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.